Welcome to PD Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Thank you for joining me for this milestone 200th episode of the podcast. I can't believe it. We made it to 200 episodes. I've had a wonderful time going through so many different areas of cardiology and cardiovascular surgery. I hope you've enjoyed some of this journey with me. Thank you all so very much for listening all the way back from episode one up to today, our 200th. I was thinking as I was planning this episode, what should I do that would be special on this 200th episode? And I thought what I would do is bring back one of the most popular guests we've had on the entire podcast series to talk a little bit about cardiovascular physiology, just as he did four years ago. Of course, I'm speaking of the great intensive care guru of cardiovascular science, Anthony Rossi, who is professor of pediatrics at Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, Florida. Dr. Rossi joined us for episode 21 back in 2018 when he spoke with us about a paper that he wrote while working at my present institution, Mount Sinai, on the use of mixed venous saturations for the management of postoperative single ventricle patients. That episode has been probably the most downloaded episode in the entire series, and based on the extraordinary popularity of that, as well as my deep admiration for Tony, we're going to review another of his older papers and then speak with him about his thoughts on how to manage the postoperative patient using some of the concepts in the paper. The work we'll be reviewing comes to us from 2005, the journal Intensive Care Medicine, and it's entitled Goal-Directed Medical Therapy and Point-of-Care Testing Improves Outcomes After Congenital Heart Surgery. The first author of that work was Anthony Rossi and the senior author Redmond Burke, and this work comes to us from the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit in Miami Children's Hospital, now called Nicholas Children's Hospital. As is usual, when we're done reviewing this paper, We'll sit down and speak with Dr. Rossi about his thoughts on it and also some general concepts of postoperative management. Some of you may know that I got my start in pediatric cardiology back in 1990 when I was a visiting medical student at Mount Sinai, and Dr. Rossi was the attending in charge of the cardiac ICU, and I think it would be fair to say that he inspired me to become a pediatric cardiologist. And I learned how important it was to have a great mentor in life, as he has been for me, both in medicine and life in general. He's now a very close friend of mine, and I am thrilled that we can have him back this week to share some of his extraordinary knowledge of postoperative cardiac care. Therefore, let's move straight on to this wonderful article from back in 2005, and then we'll have a long conversation with Professor Rossi. This week's article is a wonderful follow-up to our prior episode with Dr. Rossi back in episode 21, and for those of you who may have missed it, I'd recommend you take a listen to better understand the genesis of this week's work, which was published roughly 15 years after the first one we discussed back in 2018. The work we're reviewing is on the important topic of goal-directed medical therapy in the cardiac ICU, which today may seem fairly common, but the notion of protocolizing things and keeping one's eye on the prize, so to speak, was a fairly novel one back in the early 2000s. The authors explain in the start of this work that so-called goal-directed therapy utilizes an algorithm to modify therapy or treatment to achieve a predetermined goal, with variables measured regularly at particular intervals to monitor progress towards that goal. 
In this case, the authors chose the measurement of blood lactate levels as the goal and that of keeping the level either low or working towards lowering it. Essential to this protocol was the development at that time of so-called point-of-care testing, whereby a lab test could be achieved very rapidly, usually physically near to the patient, so that the actual turnaround time from testing to result was very small, allowing for the clinician to make decisions rapidly to reduce the length of time in which the goal, in this case lactate, was abnormal. At the time of the paper we're reviewing, there were no prior works using a goal-directed algorithm in concert with point-of-care testing and its impact on critically ill children, and this was what made this work novel and important back when it was published. For those of you who may have listened to our prior podcast with Dr. Rossi back in 2018, you'll not be surprised to learn that blood lactate levels were chosen to be the treatment endpoint or goal of the algorithm, as he explained this to us in that podcast. And they applied this concept to all post-operative patients in the CICU at what is now called Nicholas Children's Hospital. And the author stated, and I quote, We assumed the combination of -of point-of-care testing and goal-directed therapy aimed at normalizing blood lactate levels would increase survival after heart surgery. And so we evaluated the impact of the combination of these changes on the mortality rate in pediatric cardiac surgical patients. This was a retrospective study, and this is important, but the outcomes are quite impressive still. The authors basically looked at all surgical cases in two different time periods at Nicholas Children's Hospital, specifically the time period of June 1995 to June 2001, which the authors refer to as Group A in this work, and then the period from July of 2001 to September of 2003, which they refer to in this work as Group B, which represents the time period when the authors began using point-of-care testing and goal-directed therapy, which again is an algorithm for how to react to the lactate values obtained, which was, again, the goal chosen by the intensivists in the CICU. There were, by the way, over 1,600 patients in Group A and a bit over 700 patients in Group B. There's a table comparing the two groups, and basically they were similar, with the exception of a few important differences. The latter group, B, was younger, 185 days, versus 327 days, and they had longer bypass and cross-clamp times, with the bypass being roughly 30 minutes longer on average in Group B, and cross-clamp about 20 to 25 minutes longer also in Group B. Newborns represented about one-third of the Group B operative cases, whereas newborns were only about 20% of the Group A earlier era patients. Importantly, on average, the RACS-1 scores were similar between the two groups. The authors explain that ISTAT machines were purchased and used in the period of Group B, and they provide their algorithm in Figure 1, which I would strongly recommend all review, as the concepts espoused in this are as true today as then over 15 years ago. The bottom line is that the authors would obtain a lactate level basically hourly for the first 4-6 to hours in all newborns or neonatal surgeries to keep abreast of oxygen delivery versus consumption, and the authors review how they use the absolute value as well as the direction of change as a rationale for intervening or not intervening. But the goal of all interventions for rising lactate or high lactate values was escalation of medical management with a general goal of improving systemic oxygen delivery or diminishing oxygen consumption, basically globally improving the ratio of O2 delivery to consumption. How this was achieved would clearly vary based upon the individual physiology, but some of the things that were done included giving blood, 
escalating inotropes, augmenting afterload reduction, changing the ventilator settings, or other maneuvers, perhaps like sedation or even neuromuscular blockade. And so what were the major findings? Well, let's go on to the results. First and most important, mortality was statistically significantly lower in Group B versus Group A, 1.8% versus 3.7%. The authors did a sub-analysis of the 27 months prior to the Group B period versus the Group B cases and found nearly identical mortality rates, meaning that there was no trend towards this in the immediate period prior to Group B's period. The second important finding was that there was no difference in mortality between Group A and Group B for those patients who were over one year of age, but there was a significant difference seen in those less than one year of age. Similarly, neonatal mortality was also significantly decreased in Group B, and the authors state that this was not a pattern, specifically reduction in neonatal mortality, that could be seen prior to the period of Group B. The authors then did a small sub-analysis based on RACS grouping, and showed that for lower-risk cases of RACS 1 and 2 grouped together, the mortality was the same in Group A and B. But when combining the higher-risk RACS 3 to 6 together, surgical mortality was lower in Group B, where it was 3%, versus Group A, where it was 9%. And figures 3 and 4 in this paper very nicely graphically demonstrate the improvement in mortality rates in the neonates and high RACS score cases between Groups A and B patient groups, and the link to the paper will be in the show notes. And so to sort of summarize, in general, after implementation of a lactate normalization goal-directed approach to therapy via an algorithm using a point-of-care device at bedside, the authors demonstrated generally improved outcomes for sicker and younger patients with less impact on the older, less complex patient groups. In their discussion, the authors review why they embarked on the use of -of point-of-care testing explaining that they were looking for the shortest turnaround time in testing to allow for rapid intervention, and they mentioned their interest in minimizing what they refer to as lack time, by which they mean living with an elevated lactate level, and they also mentioned that they chose lactate as it had already been established in other scenarios to be a fairly objective measure of oxygen delivery that had already been demonstrated to be fairly good at predicting mortality in the critically ill. They state, and I quote, We believe that the combination of these changes in clinical practice would result in improved survival for our patients undergoing congenital heart surgery. The investigators speak of how the lactate levels were used to know if escalation in medical management was needed, and restate how these findings demonstrated marked reductions in mortality for patients undergoing congenital heart surgery at Miami Children's during the time period in which this goal-directed therapy with rapid lactates were used routinely and in a consistent manner. They then review some of the literature demonstrating that lactate levels were good at predicting good or bad outcomes in critically ill patients, and how there was even a small prior pediatric work showing that outcomes were worse if the lactate was elevated or rising rapidly. Dr. Rossi and colleagues also review the then-growing body of literature on the impact of goal-directed therapy in the ICU on reducing mortality in critically ill patients, but how there was very little in the post-op congenital pediatric patient cohort at the time that this work was written. They reference their own work that we reviewed back in episode 21 on the use of mixed venous oxygen saturations following the Norwood as an example of a positive impact of a goal-directed approach to managing the critically ill child after heart surgery. At the time of this work, point-of-care testing, as was done in this work, was novel, 
and the authors review how it had been shown to be beneficial in other diseases, such as diabetes management or patients requiring anticoagulation and management of that issue. They then again re-emphasize the fact that an elevated lactate for virtually any form of heart disease almost always indicates a serious physiologic derangement, no matter the form of heart disease, and they state, quote, a lactate level of 10 always indicates severe physiologic derangement and increased risk for mortality. And they contrast this to the mixed venous oxygen saturation, which, though helpful, can have different absolute values for different physiologies and requires more knowledge on the part of the care provider in interpretation. The authors review the limitations, including its retrospective design in which they state that most protocols did not change in the two eras other than the goal-directed therapy related to lactate levels, but they admit that there may have been unmeasurable changes, including personnel changes over the time period, as well as a change in the leadership of the CICU at that institution. But they state that they believe these changes to have not been of great importance. And so they conclude, Critically ill patients represent a unique challenge to both laboratory and clinical services. Rapidly changing physiologic conditions warrant careful and prompt evaluation and treatment. For patients recovering after congenital heart operations, the combination of -of point-of-care testing and a goal-directed therapeutic protocol based on serial blood lactate levels was associated with a marked reduction in mortality. The reduction in mortality was greatest in both the youngest patients and those patients undergoing the highest-risk procedures. It is possible that goal-directed therapeutic protocols aimed at normalizing other objective indicators of cardiovascular well-being may result in similar improvements in outcomes. Accompanying this work was a brief editorial comment entitled, Goal-Directed Therapy May Improve Outcome in Complex Patients, Depending on the Chosen Treatment Endpoint. And the authors of this editorial comment are Bernard Fry and Duncan McRae of the University of Zurich. The authors of this work start by explaining that though fancy new techniques or therapies are one way of improving outcomes, perhaps the greatest opportunity to improve outcomes comes not from discovering new treatments, but using existing therapies more effectively. They speak of how an emphasis on systems and processes of healthcare delivery in the study of these might have an important and growing impact on outcomes. They speak of how interventions like this can be inexpensive but extremely effective, and for this reason, they argue strongly that healthcare service research that assesses systems of care are vital to improve care. They outline what they believe are the features of a successful goal-directed approach, and they explain that the indicators being used must be inexpensive and safe, and the goal chosen has to be one that is known to be associated with improved outcomes. They explain that to a large degree the work we have reviewed by the team in Miami adheres to these rules, and that they worked to incorporate an algorithm at the bedside for management using lactate as the endpoint, which is easy, safe, and non-invasive, and so meets many of the criteria for what they believe to be an appropriate goal-directed approach. However, they do register some concerns that because of the retrospective study design, it is challenging to know with certainty that the outcomes demonstrated were due to the point-of-care testing and goal-directed therapy. They conclude by stating that, quote, the intensive care community should strongly embrace health services research methods and lobby for funding of research of this type, seeking to achieve a cost-effective balance in the allocation of money to medical research and innovation. Well, once again, we have a very interesting paper from Dr. Rossi that is very much in line with the concepts he explained to us back in 2018 on this podcast. As we have a lengthy interview expected with Dr. Rossi this week, 
I'm not going to comment now on the work and rather move on to our conversation with Professor Anthony Rossi. Anthony Rossi is the former director of the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Unit at Nicholas Children's Hospital and also the former director of pediatric cardiology at the same institution. Upon finishing his fellowship in electrophysiology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, he first moved to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, where he was the first ever director of the pediatric cardiac ICU. Following his time at Mount Sinai, establishing this first independent cardiac ICU in New York, he moved on to Miami to become the director of the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Unit at what is now called Nicholas Children's Hospital. Dr. Rossi is one of the acknowledged leaders in the world in postoperative cardiac care and is well known as a talented teacher. And as I have already mentioned on this podcast before, he inspired me to become a cardiologist, as well as many others. And I shall never forget watching him manage junctional ectopic tachycardia in a post-op patient in the cardiac ICU at Mount Sinai in 1990 and how that experience affected me. It is a great pleasure and honor to bring Dr. Rossi back on the show to discuss this topic and to honor us on this 200th milestone episode of the podcast. Welcome back, Tony, to the podcast this week. I'm here now with Tony Rossi. Tony, thank you very much for coming back for our Milestone 200th episode. Couldn't have thought of anybody who I'd rather have on. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Well, uh, thank you, Rob, for having me Having me back. I'm very, very excited to be here. I'm very honored to be uh, um, the guest on your 200th episode. That is, that is quite an honor, and I'm sure there are Dozens and dozens of people who would probably be more suited for this, but I'm happy to give it a go. And uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm just very, very thankful and excited to talk about what we're going to talk about. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Tony. Tony, as usual, very much enjoyed this paper. You should know you're one of the very few people who we've reviewed older papers in, but I thought this paper, like the one we did a few years ago, is so important and interesting that it was absolutely worth reviewing again because people may have missed it the first go-around. Or more importantly, may not have even realized that this is sort of where most of many of our clinical practices originally came from. So, you know, in 2018, you and I discussed how you and the team at my present institution, Mount Sinai, came to the conclusion that measuring a mixed venous saturation was so important in managing the single ventricle patient and you showed a remarkable improvement in outcomes in a very short period of time by better understanding and then manipulating oxygen delivery and consumption. At that time during our conversation uh, you did speak a bit about your evolution towards the use of a lactate level rather than a mixed venous sat and I thought to start our conversation today I wonder if you might be able to share with the audience a bit about why over time you move to the lactate rather than a mixed venous sat, and also maybe share with the audience a bit about what it was like for you at the bedside to get access to a point-of-care iStat machine at that time. And I was wondering if there was any friction you encountered in that time to using that sort of uh, handheld device. Wow. So, so uh, it's a great start. And yeah, I mean, you know, a lot has to do with uh, me being recruited based on a lot of the work that I did at Mount Sinai on mixed venous oxygen saturation, I had some objective data. And, and really, without saying it was goal-directed therapy, but our, our, our goal was to raise the mixed venous oxygen saturation, which is exactly what goal-directed therapy and shock is. And 
we had some outstanding results. And that's how I ended up in Miami. I mean, in Miami, they were looking for someone to take over their cardiac ICU. Hmm. Um, it was started by Anthony Chang, who's, uh, you know, an icon in cardiac critical care medicine. But there were some results that weren't as good as they wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that data is available on online for anybody to look at. We've published all of our outcomes from the day that Redmond Burke started operating here. And you had about a 33% mortality for things like stage one palliation over like a five-year period. Hmm. Um, and that was about the mortality that they had in Philadelphia, like, you know, a decade earlier. Hmm. So, you know, there were there was room for improvement. We had two great surgeons in Redmond Burke um, and Bob Hannon. Um, and, and I inherited like a, a great partner in Juan Boulevard who was trained by Anthony Chang and you know, was determined and smart and, and dedicated. And we had some young fellows like Daniel Kahn in the program. Um, but, but, you know, when I got here, you know, I had this approach to managing patients, which was relying on this objective data as opposed to subjective data. Um, and, you know, they did their first, I'll say first three stage ones, um, using mixed venous, putting the mixed venous oxygen saturation catheter in, um, and those patients went home. Like we figured it out and they went home. It was very, by that time, we, you know, the, the formula was pretty straightforward for managing them once you had that, that data. And the fourth one came out and you didn't have that mixed venous oxygen saturation catheter in. Yeah. And I said, what up with this? <laughs> Robin, come on, what's going on? He said, yeah, you know, our kids are doing so well. We don't need that anymore. And it's like, you just, you just figured, you know, they had gotten so good over a couple of cases that they didn't need it anymore. Um, and it was like, oh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to figure out something something different. Mm. And and the one thing about the mixed venous saturation, it was, you know, it's the subjective number that, you know, you might not fully understand why it was high or why it was low, mm. but when it was high or low, you knew how well the patient was doing. And you couldn't argue about that. Um, and so now I had lost that. Um, and one of the things I had realized very early in my career, very early in my career at, at Miami Children's Hospital, um, was based on my first day visiting. Um, and they had done some complex DORB, um, and it was post-op day one, and we, they did this thing called Grand Rounds like they had in, in uh, Boston, where you go around and you see every patient. And this kid was on post-op day one. They had a senior cardiac ICU fellow who was managing that patient all night. And he was so proud that the patient was, quote, unquote, doing well. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, oh, he has great pulses. And I gave him bicarb like five times last night. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like his blood pressure is good. And Uh-oh. I just walked in the room and I looked at the kid and I said, oh, that kid's going to die. Like I just, and I realized that, you know, at that point in my career, you know, I, I had, I had, you know, well over like nearly 500 weeks of service in a cardiac ICU. I mean, you know, the Sinai era was me on every week. And like today, you know, most, most intensivists aren't going to get that in their lifetime. So I knew that I, I had an ability to evaluate patients that a junior person didn't. And Anthony Chang before me was all about being the master clinician. And he was trying to make everybody in a master, the master clinician. And the problem was that, yeah, after, after a decade of doing this, Maybe you reach that point. I mean, not everybody will do it, but maybe you do. 
But you can't make that happen to somebody in their first year or the second year. And these are the people that are spending all the time at the bedside. So I knew that I needed something. Hmm. And then it goes back again, you know, to the lactate part um, and the point of care part. Because those were two things that, that, that kind of came together but were kind of separate. The point of care part was very interesting in that, you know, I never heard of these little point of care ISTAT devices at all. And I got asked to do a medical mission to Guatemala um, with a group of physicians from Columbia University. Um, and they needed somebody to set up an ICU, which was literally setting up an ICU in what had been a storage room. So <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a medical room at all. And I said, well, what are we going to do for labs and everything like that? And they said, well, we got this company from Princeton, New Jersey called ISTAT. And they had this little box and they had these little cartridges and it was like, you know, like one is you couldn't believe that it was true. You know, it was like, oh, this got to be fraudulent, you know. But you run the blood gas and you get it back and it's like, hmm, that seems pretty good. Um, and after using it in Guatemala, I, I just couldn't imagine that, like, why would you go back to like a regular lab or a stat lab? Um, and, and uh, but yeah, a total speculation by the entire team. Like we had... At Nicholas Children, Miami Children's, we had a stat lab right outside hmm. of our of our ICU, um, and the turnaround time was about fifteen minutes during the day for labs. Hmm. Um, but at nighttime, there was one person's, you know, in the in that lab. They went on breaks, you know, they got overwhelmed with labs sometimes. Turnaround time could be thirty minutes or longer, and and it was like, well, there's these devices out there that you know have a two minute turnaround time with almost like. With 0.2 cc's of blood, and and like that was a, like about a fifth of the amount of blood that you had to use for blood gas back then. And when you're talking about neonatal surgery and and frequent blood gases, you know that that's amazing. And and the other thing that it did is it gave you know what I noticed is like when you gave this device to the nurse, mm-hmm. it gave them like a feeling like they were participating in the patient's care, and and they had a tremendous amount of auto- autonomy. However. The, the lab, our laboratory for the hospital, was totally against it. Yeah. First, it was like, we don't believe the data. And it's like, okay, well, you know, these things were FDA approved, and we proved that the data was, um, and, you know, what about the revenues and everything like that? It's like, hey, this is going to be cheaper, you know. And it turned out that these things were way, way cheaper, and that the, our labs eventually make a ton of money on this because you pay for the cartridge, and they charge for individual tests. But they didn't realize it at the time. So, I, you know, I finally went to Redmond and I said, look, I got to get this ISTAT in here with the lactate. Um, and, you know, he helped push that through and it was very, very hard. But the last people I had to, I had to convince was the nursing staff. Hmm. The nursing staff was like, hey, we got too much work to do. You want us to draw labs and then do the lab? It's like, that's, that's, that's so much more work and we're too busy taking care of the patients. And I said, wait a second. You draw the lab, you fill out all this lab stuff, you have to take it out of the room, you have to bring it, then you have to pull up the lab on your computer. You're like, you're going to do this at the bedside, and and it's going to be the best thing that you ever had. It'll take less time. They didn't buy it. And uh, we got the hospital to agree to purchase this for our for our ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I had I had I bought dinner for the nursing staff, like the entire nursing staff. I had a giant meeting with them. And then for someone that likes to, you know, suggest that I'm as honest as I can be, I told the largest fib of my life. 
Uh-oh. And I said, look, I got a deal. In six months, if this isn't the best thing you ever had, if this doesn't make your life so much better, we're going to take it out. That's my deal with the hospital. We got a six-month trial period. That was completely false. <laughs> okay. I was so confident that this was so much better from the end user experience. You know, we're, and and you know the ability for them to take a small amount of blood and then do a blood gas also gave them we gave them autonomy. Like, hey, if you think someone needs a blood gas, do it first, ask second. You know, and, you know, by the time, you know, one month into this, it's like they could never go back mm. to the stat lab again. Um, but but it was it was a war at first. Um, and, and then it's like, you know, once you did it, you could never take it away. And after we had it, every other ICU in the hospital had to have an ISTAT. And Tony, in terms of choosing lactate as your goal, that was I, I from reading your paper, it seems like. There was a growing literature that in critically ill people, lactate was a good uh, biomarker for problems with oxygen delivery and consumption. Um, is that generally how you knew to use that value or, or to use it well, instead of, I understand that you didn't have the the central line anymore. Redmond was uh, not giving you that anymore. But uh, is that how you came to use lactate particularly? Well, it's, it's very, you know, it's again, like, I think two of my best, you know, the, the things that have, have made me successful in my career as a cardiac intensivist is that I, my ability to show up and my ability to pay attention. And it doesn't go much beyond that. Sometimes I can connect the dots after that, but it doesn't go much beyond that. What, so what, during the time that I was at Mount Sinai, and, and this is, this is like, a, this is just a great story. It's like, you know, you you were taught in the 1980s and early 1990s that if you had a patient who was sick and they had they were acidotic and they had a base deficit, yes. you know, minus five, minus seven, you know, that they had lactic acidosis. Right. And that was it. And in the absence of that, they didn't have lactic acidosis, so all was well. So if your pH was okay and your base deficit was zero, everything is well. And there was this brilliant adult intensivist um, at Mount Sinai at that time. His name is Tom Iberti. And, and, and Tom, you know, he led a group of people who were just obsessed with, with shock. So there's a guy, an intensivist named Andy Leibowitz and, and Ernest Benjamin. And those guys were like legendary, but they were legendary in how much they loved what they were doing. Um, and so Tom wrote this paper and it's like, it's a paper that, Maybe the adult critical care world gets a lot of credit, but, you know, he wrote a paper where he looked at the anion gap, which is basically the base deficit that you got, and lactate. And and what he showed was that, well, yeah, when the anion gap is like, you know, minus 10, the lactate's really high. But there was this whole, you know, um, section of patients that had anion gaps that were not very, very negative at all or might be normal. And yet the lactate could be 5 to 10. Hmm. Now, you know, lactates of 5 to 10, you know, for medical patients are, you know, a lactate of 10 is almost 100% mortality for an adult ICU patient. And a lactate of 5 is like, was like a 75% mortality. And yet using the anion gap or using the base deficit didn't pick up any of those lactates. Hmm. So this whole concept that, you know, you can have elevated lactate in the absence of acidosis was totally novel. And, and then one day, you know, I was, you know, filling out. So 
back in the old days, you had these like blood gas, you know, kind of papers you would fill out for everyone, you know, uh, sure. check this, check this, check this. And one day I'm looking at it and it's like, oh, there's lactate on there. And I was just like, and this is probably in the mid to late 1990s. And I was going, huh, did I not like ever see this before? <laughs> is this something new? And I just checked it. Okay. You know, not knowing what I was going to get, they sent out the work. It came back and I got a number. I had no idea what to do with that number. And for about three or four years, I was just checking that off. And I was like getting these numbers and I'm going, this is really curious. <laughs> I'm really, really sure how to use this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to, you know, when I, when I got to Miami Children's Hospitals and I realized I could measure this. And now I had the ability to measure that. Um, on a point of care device that perhaps aiming my therapy to that instead of mixed venous oxygen saturation would work in a similar fashion. So we developed this kind of, you know, method of managing patients where, you know, if your lactate is elevated, you're going to do something to increase oxygen delivery. Like you're going to, you know, the elevation of lactate that we see in most of the patients in our units is related to, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, 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 abnormality in the in the ratio of oxygen that's delivered to the uh, uh, amount of oxygen that's consumed, and it's supposed to be like you know we deliver five times as much oxygen as we consume, and then when you get to like two times as much oxygen as you consume, cells develop anaerobic metabolism and your lactate goes up, uh, and that's not the only reason why your lactate can be up, but. The majority of it in our patient population, which despite being heterogeneous in the type of diseases that they have, yes. you know, it's all about oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. Um, and I figured if we could target that, you know, then, you know, what it did for me was one, it took the junior guy. Like, so there, there were a couple of things. It took the most junior guy and he no longer had to assess a patient and say, oh, I think that kid's very sick or it's not. He could look at this one number and, you know, it, it would either confirm what he believed or it would challenge what he was believing at the time. But I thought it gave him the ability to see the patient a little bit more like me. And then what it allowed him to do was, you know, to assess the changes that they made in their management, like, you know, over a very short period of time. So, you know, in a critically ill baby, you're probably getting a blood gas every hour. Right. Well, you can manage your, you know, you can look at your lactate every hour, and if we're doing something good, it would come down. And, you know, what we did is we encouraged them. We did, It's like, look, if the lactate's, you know, above five, you're going to do something to that kid. I'm not going to tell you what to do because it's about increasing oxygen delivery or decreasing oxygen consumption. You figure it out. Do they need more hemoglobin? Do they need more dopamine? Do they need more milrinone? But you can't sit there and leave them alone. Um, and, you know, it, these, this, this lactate was a totally objective indice of how well the patient's doing. I like to, you know, honestly, I, I think of it, you know, as an indicator of cardiovascular well-being. Yeah. You know, that simple. Um, when it's low, you're probably pretty good. And when it's high, there's no denying you're in trouble. Right. And so, you know, I just kind of morphed over some of it by just being in the right place at the right time with the right people. Very interesting. You know, Tony, I was wondering if you could speak to the notion of what you describe in the work as lack time, which I assume you mean the period of time when your lactate is elevated and the ability to reduce the time that the level is elevated. For example, do you think that 
having a device right at the bedside and having that result in less than two minutes was the biggest factor that would account for the improvement that you described in your work then? Or do you think it was just keeping track of it at all, which was the key issue? In other words, do you think it was the protocolized lactate measurement or the fact that you could get those results as quickly? Or do you think it was really just both? Yeah. So lactate is a very interesting concept um, because it's, it, you know, when you, when you understand it, it becomes intuitive. Um, and, uh, but, but it's not the way that I traditionally, most people, when they're first learning about lactic acidosis, how they think of it, you usually think, oh, the higher it is, you know, the poorer the prognosis. And to a certain extent, that's true. Um, but it turns out that, and, and it was, um, so there was a, another, you know, great critical care investigator from the Netherlands, I think his name was Jan Baker. Mm-hmm. And he came up with this concept of lack time. And basically it's the area under the curve that your lactate is elevated. So it's your total accumulation of oxygen debt. If you think of that, you know, you're producing extra lactate, that's oxygen debt. And so rather than how high it was in any one moment, how long it remained elevated, you know, was a better predictor of mortality. Um, And so minimizing that lactate, that lack time became really, really critical. Now, the, you know, two minutes versus, say, if you had a device in your ICU for five minutes, I don't know that that makes a difference in that clinical decision making, Um, you know, because if you're. If you ask someone to give a blood transfusion, you're not going to get it for 10 or 15 minutes anyway. Um, and it may be like an hour before you see the effects of getting the hemoglobin up. Um, but, you know, so the point of care devices, I think more were, you know, from a nursing perspective, you know, they, they became really more involved in the care of the patient. And I think that's really, really critical as opposed to people who were just like, you know, carrying out tasks. They became real, real clinicians. Um, and, and it gave them a lot of autonomy, um, but but that's that's where the lack time time came in. And I, I think it's I think it's a great concept. It's it's how much time you have oxygen debt. And there's a concept in critical care medicine, you know, that you know there's only so much oxygen debt you can accumulate, hmm. and then after that you're kind of done, um, and you end up with end organ damage, and eventually that becomes permanent. So we think of some of these things as like you want to prevent an arrest and I look everything should be done to prevent you know acute events in the ICU but you're also trying to prevent that patient from being a patient who might spend a week in an ICU and turn them into somebody that spends three weeks in the ICU right right no that's a good point you know Tony as you know there's a wonderful editorial that accompanied your work and in the podcast uh, you haven't heard my description yet I review it and although it was very complimentary of your work they did mention the main concern of this work, and uh, which was, of course, its retrospective design and the fact that factors other than the goal-directed therapy that you described may have accounted for improvements. As someone who was there for the entire time of period B, I'm wondering if you could offer for us your thoughts on what other factors beyond goal-directed therapy may have accounted for the improvements seen, if any. Uh, one of the things that all of us know who know Redmond Burke very well is that who's the the surgeon and senior author of this work, is that he has always, his entire career, been extremely self-critical, assesses his own errors, always looking to improve his outcomes by better understanding 
how he can improve his outcomes surgically with technique uh, improvements. Do you think that this or other factors may have played a role in these results as well? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, you unfortunately had to bring up that editorial, um, which was the senior author of that editorial is a guy who I respect as much as anyone. His name is Duncan McRae. Yes. Duncan um, is an anesthesiologist by training, and he was the head of the cardiac ICU at the Royal Brompton Hospital at the time. And, you know, uh, I, I got to know um, Duncan um, through the, uh, the, the very first, pediatric cardiac ICU meetings um, that Anthony Chang used to host. Um, And I I just thought he was brilliant. um, And I loved him. In fact, he could say something critical about something that I did was hard for me to take, but he was spot on because he was like, look, I, I, you know, the the truth is like, like a lot of the stuff that you end up publishing, you didn't start out by saying, Hey, I got an idea and I want to publish this. You know, it was like, I got an idea and I think that I think our patients would improve if we did something a certain way. You know, it's kind of like a little bit of an experiment, you know, and, uh, and you, you, you know, you weigh the risks and the benefit of it when you're taken out. But it's a clinical experiment. Not at all. I didn't I didn't seek out to say, what's the next thing I'm going to publish? Yes. Um, it just became very, very clear, you know, in a very short period of time yes. that our results really, really had improved. Um, and we had, you know, one of the things that Revan doesn't get credit for is his, his understanding of the value of a database. And so his surgical database is one of the first surgical databases that was, you know, absolutely comprehensive and cardio access database was, is his, like, so, you know, he, he developed it here in Miami, which with Jeff Jacobs. So, you know, I knew exactly what our outcomes were, you know, um, when I got here and, uh, you know, one of my first concerns when I looked at the data was, well, you know, the first thing I think you have to think about is like, okay, there were like seven years before and, you know, then this period of a couple of years that I reported on and what were we getting better? In other words, was there a trend, you know, that, you know, I just picked it up at the end and it was like things were heading in the right direction. And so in that paper, you'll see there's a, you know, I, I, I look at the, I think it's 27 months of the ISTAP period and 27 months we and there's no evidence that we were heading in the right direction. Right. We had the same surgeons, um, same cath lab. Um, the ICU changed in that my leadership was the difference. And one of the things I joked about, because trust me, every, every time that I sent that, that paper to get, you know, try to get it published, you know, some reviewer said, Hey, there are other things. And it's like, well, here's the list of things that it could be, you know, and it might just be that I'm brilliant. <laughs> and I immediately eliminated that one. as <laughs> knowing oh, that please. can't be true. And the, and the truth is that no matter how smart I could have been, no matter how much influence I could have been, you know, you, all, a person is only in the ICU for a short period of time. The leader of the ICU is only in a short period of time. Now we knew, I think in that time we may have only two attendings, but that means 50% of the days, you know, I was there. And, and probably less when you talk about weekends and at nights, you know, it was far less. So, you know, my finger on the patient, my bedside may have been, you know, like 20% of the time. And then it was 80% of the people that had previously been there. Um, But with a a novel way of looking at the patient and assessing them, you know, where I didn't force them to be master clinicians anymore, but I I, I said, look, we're just going to look at this number and it's not perfect. But all I know is if it's elevated, your patient's not doing well. Um, and, you know, 
if you could, if you can look at the patient that way and aim to make it better and say, look, I think my patient's well, but his lactate is eight. I better do something because that's where you fall into trouble. It's like you get this patient, the lactate's eight, you know, whatever you're doing in a patient isn't really working, but he's not acidotic and his blood pressure is okay. And traditionally you'd kind of not change anything, you know, and, and there was, and if you change something, you'd be afraid that maybe I'll do something and it will get worse. Right. You know, that's, that's always the fear. But once you had the lactate of eight, it's like, Hey, you, you were like, you could do almost anything you want to improve oxygen delivery without being criticized because you needed to do something. Right. Um, you know, so, so I looked at a lot of things. Look, Redmond is self-critical. Um, he takes blame for every bad outcome we have in the cardiac ICU and a kid that he uh, operates on. And, and, and he's always been that way. Um, but I don't think his way, you know, he came to Miami with that idea that if, if something's wrong with the patient, it's probably related to what I do. So let's take a look. Right. And that's where, you know, we did early postoperative cast with Evan Zahner. I mean, in that era, we had Evan Zahner as the head of our cath lab, and there was nobody more aggressive, and nobody wanted to take a kid to the cath lab more than that. That preceded me, and it preceded this whole era of point of care testing. I see. I see. Interesting. You know, uh, one of the things I thought interesting, Tony, was that you didn't really demonstrate any change in the older patients who once underwent surgery or those who had lower-risk operations, like the RACS 1 and 2 cases, after implementation of this uh, new approach. Do you think the reason for this is simply that, you know, these were easier operations and they had lower-risk profile and patients just generally, you know, don't need as much support in the post-op period? uh, Or do you have any other explanation to explain why it is that it seemed like it really only had an important, powerful impact on the, the sickest and smallest patients. Well, well, I, I think I think you know everything that you said is you know kind of the way that I've looked at it. You know, it's like you know they're lower risk patients; they're less likely to die, um, and and they don't require as much attention. Um, but at the end of the day, and, and and of course, you know, look if you have a one percent mortality operation, it's going to be a it's going to take thousands and thousands of patients to show yeah. that there's a difference in mortality for something like that. But I, but I think, I think what I didn't do, and if I, I could be critical, is you know I, I I looked at, you know, and maybe this is part of your clinician, and you spend most of your time taking care of patients, and you know you get some idea that you think is worthy of sharing, and you want to get it out there. But but um, you know what I could measure, you know, in all of these patients was their, you know, mortality. Um, and it was, you know, that's a yes or no kind of answer. Sure. It's easy for me to do the statistics, you know, and it's easy for people to understand the statistics. But what I didn't look at were other surrogates of, you know, how well a patient did, how, how, many, how many hours were on, on, on a ventilator? Did, did we change that? Um, how long were they getting inotropes? Uh, you know, even things like length of stay, I didn't go into. It was it was really, really too complicated. Um, and we're talking about, you know, a, a program at the time that didn't have a cardiology fellowship where people couldn't do stuff like that. We didn't have statisticians available to us. Um, and if there's a real criticism, I could have looked at that data a lot more closely and come up with some stronger conclusions. Because I think you would have seen, because it does make it, we measure lactate in everybody. Um, and it's really, you know, like the, the key part of it is, is not the ones that you think the lactate is going to be elevated on. 
you know, you get a hyperplasia, you know, lactate's not going to be normal when they come out, you know, but it's the kid, you know, who had a tetralogy who should be fine. And all of a, you know, this one has lactate of three and this one has lactate of three and that one has lactate of seven. You know, I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, and those, those kids usually go home, um, you know, and they're, then they're supposed to go home. So I, I, I think, I think we didn't look at enough stuff hard enough. Um, and, and, you know, I would say, you know, th there are a couple of new things that are down the line, um, that people are looking at. And, and I, I think, I think this experiment that we did with, you know, uh, goal directed therapy to lactate could be repeated by people, um, and, and either confirm what we found or find it to be as good or superior to some of the n newer things. Yes. It's like, the, or, or maybe better, you know, and, or maybe worse, you know. Sure, sure. Well, uh, for those in the audience, it's actually quite late. I know I say this often when I'm uh, doing these interviews, but I assure you this time I am truly telling you the <laughs> truth. It is quite late. It's, uh, Tony, I'm going to end off with this final question. You sort of were leading into it, actually, you know, you've clearly been a pioneer in the development of the use of algorithms and systems of care for the CICU, which today are pretty much established as the correct approach, but at the time you wrote this paper was a quite a novel concept. I'm wondering if you might be able to share with us any other such protocols that your team and Nicholas Children's used or use, and if you still today believe that the lactate is the right thing to be monitoring um, is there something else that you think might be superior? For example, those wonderful near-infrared spectrometry nears things that are <laughs> destroying the skin integ skin integrity of all of our patients, or perhaps uh, they say any, it doesn't do that. But you're absolutely okay. right. Or uh, should is there anything else that maybe you think should be used uh, now in combination with lactate when you're thinking about patients? Well, well so so there uh, you know great question and great way to. To, to finish this, I mean, you know, one of the things about when we wrote that paper, there were no papers on point of care testing in a cardiac ICU, pediatric cardiac ICU. There were zero. There were no papers on goal-directed therapy. Like if you if you go to PubMed and do goal-directed therapy pediatrics, like before 2000, there are no cardiac papers about that. Uh -huh. And the only place that people use lactate was that, you know, predict mortality. It's like, oh, your lactate's you know, elevated. You're probably going to die. It's <laughs> like, um, and so all those concepts are novel. But, but, but honestly, you know, there hasn't been much, you know, over the past two decades that's really looked at, you know, uh, that that relationship between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. And it's it is like, it, it's 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 everything. You know, for our critically ill patients, it's everything. It's the difference between life and death. And, and what's been shown is that, look, you know, we, we get this wrong a lot of the times. Like, for instance, you know, there was this series of, of, uh, of articles out of Toronto, you know, about a decade ago by a, an investigator named Lee, Jay Lee. Uh, and, and uh, you know, for hypoplasts who come out of the, who come out of the OR, you know, their cardiac output is actually quite good some of the time, mm -hmm. you know, but... But their, you know, oxygen consumption is really quite elevated, hmm. um, and and so it isn't even an oxygen delivery. It's like they got enough oxygen delivery; they're just consuming too much oxygen. Um, and so, you know, there there's a lot there to explore. The nears, you know, look, there there are, you know, I don't know. There, there's a there was a cult of nears. It's kind of, 
I'm not saying it's fading away, um, but it, but I, but I think it you know people are starting to understand that you know the problem with the nears, and this was pointed out by the Boston guys. And I think I've talked about it a little bit before. Is that you know what? If it's low, if your nears is low, you're in a low cardiac output state. There's no question about that. Um, but you can be in a low cardiac output state, and it can be normal. And it, so, and and you can be if that's the number that you're going with, it's like you're going to be completely misled. You know, and and if you're if your lactate, you know, is two, you're going to do well, and your prognosis is good. But but imagine if you had a test and it was, you know, you know the, the your your pH was seven point two, and your test gave you seven point four some of the time. Right. Like you would make an error in judgment that would be enormous, and yet the nears has been proven to be erroneous by that amount. Mm. you know at some points in time and you know there's this kind of well you know you just me- measure the trend well if it's telling you if your your near says 70 and your true nears is 30 what does the trend mean like i it's like you know right. if, it, if, it, if it goes up a little bit or it comes down a little bit what does it mean i think that i think that's useless and i think people are you know using their cognitive biases to kind of you know make a, a case for that um, and I, th- I think a lot of people now realize that the people in Boston, the people in in in, in uh, Philadelphia, um, it's, it's and we use it, you know, because if, if it's low and you weren't suspecting somebody to have a low nears, then it's then it's helpful. It's just like you got to use it as one of your as one of your tools. And I think that's where lactate comes in. It's one of your tools for evaluating the patient, nice. but it's an objective tool, and I will take an objective tool over subjective tool every single time. There are some, th- you know. When you talk about, you know, the analytics that are available, you know, there's a there's a company, Pediometry, sure. um, you know, that 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 has you know partnered with a bunch of really superb children's hospitals, and and there's some brilliant people that are behind this. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that it's ready to go. Um, you know, they've developed this uh, this. This index, it's called the uh, Inadequate Oxygen Delivery Index, mm-hmm. um, and it's based on a, a whole bunch of parameters. The problem that I have is, like, you can't really figure out how they're coming up with these numbers. Um, and in this this Inadequate Oxygen Delivery Index, which sounds fantastic, um, you know, it it's only been used to, you know, um, to predict if someone has a low SVO2. And, and, and the way that they've confirmed that is using SVO2s or mixed venous oxygen saturations from a whole bunch of different places in patients because they needed enough data. So, you know, it could be an SVC, it could be a right atrium, it could be a central venous. It's like, well, that's, you know, those things can be off by so much from your true mixed venous oxygen saturation. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't think it's ready yet, ready to go. And the software has been incredibly expensive. Yeah, I was actually interested in this because it was right up my alley, that kind of, you know, sure. predictive analysis uh, or analytics. And, and, and uh, but it was like six figures to get involved in this. And it's like, you know, I don't know, the big places may have six figures to throw at this and say, hey, let's see what it's got. But, you know, most programs don't have six figures to throw around every year. Yeah. It's not like, you know, you buy it in and it's like you're good to go. So we'll see where that goes. Um, but I, but I still think that, you know, we could do much better. We got to figure out, you know, why our patients aren't 
you know, I, I always go back to my Philadelphia experience in hypoplastic left heart syndrome, you know, and, you know, it looked like, you know, I, you know, Norwood went, went to Philadelphia, you know, and, and I don't know what the, I forget what the number, 60% of his patients lived and 40% died after Norwood or stage one palliation. And then every decade, it got better and better and better until we got to about 15% mortality. And we're kind of stuck there. Um, and, and, and there's got to be things that we can do to help the surgeons out. Because I think surgically, there's not going to be much more that they could do. They can't refine this operation much more than they're doing it now. And whether it's the traditional stage one or the sino, they're all coming at the same. So we got to figure out a way to get you know that 15% which took a long time, but now is stalled, you know, down to 5%, mm-hmm. you know, something that we would really consider. And, and, and that's going to be on us. Um, and I don't know where it's coming. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping for something. I'm hoping that some of these, you know, predictive analytics, I hate to say artificial intelligence, because um, we're not nearly there yet. Um, but, but, but there's got to be something else. But until then, the lactate, you know, is simple. You get it with a blood gas. Doesn't require any more blood to be drawn from the patient. You get it frequently in the sick patients because they need blood gases frequently. Um, and when it's elevated, your patient's in trouble. And you, you know, and, and we know that if you can get it down fast enough, your patient's going to do better. Right. It's like, that, that's what this is all about. Well, Tony, uh, as always, remarkable clarity, just like Back in 1990, when I uh, was inspired to be a pediatric cardiologist, rounding with you in the ICU, I was thinking as I was walking through the hallway of Mount Sinai, how back in 1990, it was you, me, and Merrill Cohn. And uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, aside from me, there were some pretty big superstars on that team. (laughs) Back then. Uh, there were two superstars, and, but uh, I wasn't included and, in that uh, class. So anyway, Tony, I really appreciate your sharing your great and deep knowledge of this topic with us all. Uh, we have a hypoplast going to the OR tomorrow. I'm going to be thinking of all these concepts when I go up and look at that patient tomorrow afternoon. Thank you so much for everything you've meant to me personally, but uh, thank you most of all tonight for spending so much time with us uh, and speaking about this very important and uh, really exciting topic. Thank you so much, again, Tony. Again, an honor, an honor to be asked to do this. I, I really appreciate the work you're putting in for this. Thank Don't you. stop. All right. Thanks a lot, Tony. Well, yet again, we've had a great opportunity to listen to one of the greats of postoperative care and Dr. Rossi. And his comments about how he came to use the lactate level in a goal-directed manner were of great interest and his choice to go with that particular biomarker has clearly proven the test of time, as it is still one of the most important values that all of us use in common practice every day when caring for our congenital heart patients following open-heart surgery. As he was uncommonly clear, as he always is, I think I won't comment any further other than to thank him once more for being our 200th episode guest and coming back on the podcast to share with us his knowledge. As we are about to go to the musical ending of the podcast on this milestone episode, I wanted to thank all of the many, many guests who've been so kind as to appear on the podcast. As I have said from the very beginning, the guests really do make the show, and I have been profoundly honored to have so many notable figures in our field join us to discuss so many different and unusual aspects of our field, which we all love so very much. 
I am particularly indebted to Dr. George Ofori Amamfo, who was my friend and the very first guest on the podcast, but I'm really so thankful to all of the many guests. I wish also to thank Anna, Ari, Bossi, and Miriam Kimmelfeld for being supportive of this endeavor, particularly in its early stages. And most of all, I wish to thank you, the listeners, for spending so much of your time with me. I hope to continue this work, which I've come to realize many enjoy, and I hope my stamina allows it to continue onward. Thank you all so very much. To conclude this 200th milestone episode of Pediatric Cardiology Today, I thought we'd replay what I think may be some of the most impressive singing we featured at the end of these podcasts. We'll hear in this excerpt the great American tenor Michael Spires sing the extraordinary and rousing third-act cabaletta from the rarely performed Donizetti opera Les Martis, and this cabaletta is entitled Oui dans le Temple, and is notable for Mr. Spires reaching way up to a high E above high C. And let's remember that this is performed live. This is extraordinarily brave and beautiful singing, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, the past 200 episodes, and thanks once more to Dr. Rossi for his insights this week. I hope you're all ready for the next 200. Here we come! Thank you.